0: I repeat, the title for this morning's talk is uh, Agony of Alienation. Surely everybody here and elsewhere is familiar with that, has felt it at one time or another. The agony, the anguish, the desolation at times and despair Resulting from feeling separated, estranged, alienated, from the fellow beings and from the world. (coughs) Hey. (laughs) All right. <laughs> you know there's this, old all song sometimes I feel like a motherless child sorry I can't keep it tuned but anyway <laughs> it hurts to feel that way So, today, I want to examine this feeling and examine how to end it. It all begins at the beginning, of course. For many months, inside the womb, we share this bloodstream uh, stream with our mothers. when we are born and we discover this beautiful bountiful breast that feeds us and some mo- month go by a year whatever and it's taken away from us it was ours it's taken away from us not easy we were not prepared. We may not remember it, but uh, the fallout can still be there. Worst of all, not only were we not prepared, our parents weren't prepared for the whole thing that followed. Um, those of you who have been in contact with psychology know very well that psychology has investigated all this in great detail. And I guess they have come out for very realistic conclusions. While very often the child manages to emerge from these difficulties, from this from the breakup of a symbiotic relationship with the mother and emerges, and the child manages to emerge successfully from that, there are surely a number of ways how that process can go wrong. This emergence can go wrong, this separation can go wrong. Some cases, it's just the process, the child doesn't make it, doesn't complete the process, (coughs) falls short of being able to separate. In other cases, what happens is the process takes place too abruptly, too fast, too without really ripening, so it's never truly completed. It's just a semblance of that. There's still much unfinished business behind. So, anyway, I'm not uh, here concerned with the details or the pathologies of this process, which, as I said, Psychotherapy investigates very thoroughly. Here I'm interested with the fallout. The process of this going from symbiosis to individuation can be an organic unfolding or can be a hostile process such that it leaves an imprint, a lasting imprint on the psyche, coloring our relationships with all others and with the world. We end up disconnected burn our bridges. What happened in the early years certainly contributes very much to this difficulty, but it's not the only contributing factor. In fact, in countries like America, in the West, there's a tremendous cultural influence the culture of individualism that sort of enhances this sense of separation between me and you, between us and them. Let me just uh, remind you of some of the ways how this separation is uh, enhanced by our culture. These days, of course, there is a culture of war assaulting us, really assaulting us. It's us versus them. The bad guys in the cards and the good George W. Bush. If you're not with us, you're against us. We hear that from the highest office in the land. There's the Americans on the one side and the evil nations and the other. That this can be proclaimed so brazenly says a lot about the culture we are in. These proclamations of separations between us and them trickles down often enough a separation between me and you. It's me the, very often me the victim and you the bully, or vice versa. Dependence and preferences and possibilities. Same conflicts nations feature we reflect as well in our personal relationships look what we do when we are on the road and competing with every other car on the road and at times as a result of the road rage that so has in one or the other of the drivers. There's confrontations that can lead, in fact, to murder. It's not an unusual kind of feeling for any of us. So those are the wars among us. Much less uh, brutal, but more pervasive, is the culture of just plain competition, which is enthroned by the culture as the only rational guide that's acceptable for our actions. It's, uh, I win or I lose. Nothing in between. Our peers and acquaintances are allies in competition with opponents or opponents in that competition. I can see this uh, so spread out in the culture that my grandchildren live in. They they can't escape. Even when they want to, they can't escape. My grandson Manuel at some point stopped doing sports. He couldn't bear the thought of losing a thing. That's my interpretation And, I it it's so hard to avoid this. So I said, I'm allowed to quit sports at some point. We are kept apart, segregated from each other by the fault line between you and me, created or enhanced by competition between my family and the rest of the world. Minder and even more pervasive without just you know going fully into competition is a sense of comparison. We are, aren't we? Into the habit of Constantly, relentlessly comparing each other. I see that popping up in my retreat so often. Because, of course, in a retreat, and the longer, the better. There is this additional um, subtlety, sensitivity to what's actually happening. And so, I can catch... My inner comments about, you know, this other yogi who's, um, how gross he is. Or somebody else how excellent and feel a little wish to, to come up to that level of presumed excellency, which is it's just in my mind, you know, just in my mind. You know, how somebody walks, how somebody eats, how dare they do this or that, or speak or rush or whatever. And so, comparison again cultivates the fault line between me and and you, and in fact, it's, it's largely one of the reasons why we do it. We end up finding ourselves more secure in separation. Which is so strange, you know, so strange. what we set out to find is a world that's secure To to find safety that's very understandable we're not seeking separation in itself we seek safety but the plan backfires we find ourselves increasingly separated that's what the plan delivers And through that, we create more unhappiness to ourselves, more suffering, not only that, but even more sense of insecurity. Since when did barricades make one feel secure? Look what's happening in this country with this Patriot Act. Does it make us feel secure? Quite the contrary. We create barricades against an unidentified enemy and we end up through the barricades, creating the enemy who wasn't there in the first place. Not just the physical enemy, but the enemy in our minds. We begin to see terrorists all over. And we thus fabricate the terrorists in our minds. And even out there, perhaps, as well. So, it's not working. A basic need for security, understandable, is, in fact, jeopardized by the separations that we create. Separations we didn't really want in the first place. It's not what we went out seeking on the contrary. We went out seeking to have back the breast of our mother. Is there a better way? Of course there is. Of course there. Is. The, the way to end this anguish of alienation is the same way that the Buddha pointed out to end the anguish of all suffering. Alienation being just one example of it. And so, what was the basic way that the Buddha taught us, perhaps you probably heard often enough. It's a condensed in what's called the four Noble truth. The first truth, there is suffering. And this is not a theoretical statement. It's check it out. <coughs> Get in touch with the suffering. Become aware of it. The second truth is about the origin of suffering. Which, as the Buddha said, has to do with clinging. But really, the important thing is, look at where the suffering comes from. The third truth is, once you've understood that, then stop feeding the suffering and end it. The fourth truth is... Now, if if your resolve to end the suffering is not working, try these eight different things. Namely, the Noble Eightfold Path with eight limbs, with eight recommendations. Now, I wrote them down on the paper yesterday. I just needed uh, George to help me. It... it and the list is right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. It doesn't matter whether you remember them. I certainly don't easily enough. It's just a sense that there are a number of things that we need to check out and see if they need uh, some redoing in order to end the suffering to come back to the third noble truth so in the case of alienation how do this uh, four noble truth apply to a situation where we feel alienated from others or from the world first noble truth Become aware of how much separation hurts. Become aware of how much separation hurts. Feel it. Cry if you need to cry. Just just let it be felt. But think about it, but let it be felt. It hurts. Second noble truth see where the suffering comes from. Look into the clinging to I, my, the group, the family, whatever it is. And and, and see see where the, that's where it comes from, from the clinging. It's just a nothing that you should just accept this on anybody's authority. Just check it out. Do you do you feel that that's a source? And let the the, the actual experience percolate into you with the authority that experience carries. When you discover some of the sources of the suffering, stop feeding them. If it's the clinging, well, stop feeding the clinging. Clinging may not stop, but at least you don't build it up. You don't feed it. If all this is not working, check out the Noble Eightfold Path. See, what is it that you might do to help? Let me move a little bit from the generalities to the concrete. In... um, in an issue of the Mountain Record, which is a Zen publication, last winter there was um, an article by Susan Moon that uh, I was very touched by. She talks about this stuff. And Susan Moon, by the way, is the editor of the Turning Wheel, a publication, a Buddhist publication, Uh engaged Buddhism publication. So she talks about her feeling of separation and how hurtful it was as a child. And then she talks about one thing that she would do that uh, would relieve that feeling. She says, I used to play a game with my best friend. We took turns leading each other around the neighborhood neighborhood blindfolded. That's to say obviously. one one was blindfolded, the other not. That's the way I read it. And after a while yes, and after a while the guided sto- the guide stopped and the blindfolded one had to guess where we were. Guess where we were. Oh, Brewster Street informed in front of Tracy's house. Then we'd take the blindfold off and be surprised. But what I loved about the game, more than the guessing, was being the blindfolded one and giving myself up to my friend's eyes. She had one point of view for both of us, and so I wasn't separate. I might as well have been inside her head. But, you know, for that sort of thing, we don't have to go all the way to wherever Susan Moon is, probably in California now. We have an example right here with Roberta being interpreted For, for a long time by Viv and now by someone else. And the ability, then, to allow somebody... guide you as being for that time in somebody's head. You could see those in a way as skillful means to explore non-separation. Right action in terms of the novel Eightfold Path to explore the end of suffering. At least for Susan Moon, those moments were moments of discovering she wasn't separate. Whatever else was happening in her life, of course. At this point, I want to shift from actuality to story, and I have a um, story to share with you. And um, by the way, I gave Roberta a copy, Roberta and Dave a copy of this story, so they can look it up. Do you, I hope you, you have it there? Yeah. yeah. Very good. Excellent. So, you know, it's easier than you find the translation. Story is called, well, um, you, you don't have to translate this one. That's okay, I would love to. the option of looking at the paper. Yeah, very I'm good. Just saying it very good, okay, does. excellent. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, too, have the option of looking at the paper or remembering it. <laughs> I generally don't read it, but it feels good to have the paper. <laughs> Old Joe lived in the country house. He had one good neighbor. It friends all their lives. And now, with the spouses dead and buried, the children gone, all they had was the farms and each other. One day, the friendship went on the blink over a silly argument. Straka wandered into the neighbor's property and the neighbor claimed it as his own. Oh no, said Joe. I recognize it as mine and Ojo claimed it as his own so they argued they raised their voices they became incensed the upshot of all that was that they stopped talking to each other not only that but the neighbor got a tractor and dug a furrow along the property line and flooded it, making a creak of separation between the two. That night, Old Joe fantasized on how to get even. He thought he'd built a fence. Next morning, there was a knock at Joe's door. There was a, a young man, very pleasant looking, dark, deep eyes. He said he was a carpenter looking for work. Joe felt that God has an, had answered his prayers just what he needed. Still, Joe was a cautious fellow, so he wasn't want to take someone right off. Someone on, right off. And so, he invited the young man in. He treated him with uh, bread and uh, freshly churned butter and homemade jam. After a while, he felt a connection with his young fellow, so he began to tell him about the fight with the neighbor and his plans to build a fence. the young man said... Oh yes, he said to the young man, I want... I want you to do me one better. than, of course, the creek. The young man said, If you can get me the lumber and the nails I will do the job that you like. So old Joe went, gathered the needed materials, and then he had to go off to town. So he hitched up his wagon, and off he went. The young man worked instantly. He was fast and smooth at sawing, measuring, and nailing the lumber for the job at hand. By sunset, he had finished the work. And just then, old Joe pulled up in his wagon. stopped. He looked, he couldn't believe his eyes, his eyes popped out, his jaw dropped. There was no fence there at all. What there was, instead, was a bridge. And on the bridge, coming up on the bridge from the other side was the neighbor. Stretching out his hand and saying, Oh, Joe, you're quite a fellow. I would not have been able to build a bridge and I'm so glad that we are going to be friends again. Joe was stunned but he couldn't resist it all not that he really wanted to resist it so he just found himself climbing up the bridge and wrapping his arms around his friend his old friend his new friend he stayed there for a while and after a while He said, by the way, Joe, I always knew that calf was yours. I just don't know what got into me to claim otherwise. Then he turned to the young man and said, I will be forever thankful for the lesson that you've taught me. Here today, I hope you can stay here for a while. I have quite a number of other projects for you. Young man smiled and said, "I wish I could, uh, Joe, but you know, I have to go. I have." many other bridges to build. So you see the the young man, the carpenter, really stands for the Noble Eightfold Path. Whatever aspect of that path needed to be done, and it was done by this third person, in this case, of course, which could be part of us, too. And so, the action that the carpenter performed turned things around completely. And the whole first three noble truth became manifest to Joe. He saw his suffering in, in an instant. Saw his suffering, saw how to, where he was coming from, and went up to the bridge to end it. Generally, we don't have a third person. Or we're not You know, we don't have these carpenters that do these magical things to us, so we've got to find the carpenter, the noble eightfold path within ourselves. In the grander scheme of things, of course, is not safety, or certainly not separation, what sustains our presence in the world, but actually love and connection, no, love and connectedness. How they manifest? It's unpredictable. We may touch somebody. We may look into somebody's eyes. However, during the the last month, I'm sorry, the month-long sit at uh, the forest refuge in March, I had this little experience, which is uh, absolutely impossible to communicate. I'll I'll describe it, but it's uh, it makes no sense when I say it, you know. I was walking on a little platform there, and um, there was a little spider in front of me, and walking too, doing her walk, and so I stopped spider stopped. I went ahead. The spider went back. So I went back. The spider went ahead. And we had this little dance, the spider and me, for a few minutes. And then at some point, the spider thought better of it and just realized it was a dangerous game. You know, how did it know who I was? And rushed into one of the cracks. and mm-hmm. wouldn't. But, so, let's say, there's no story there. Yet, because I had been sitting for nearly a month by then, I was receptive to to the deep significance of that dance, to my connectedness with other beings. In this case, particularly... Signified by the spider. Our rediscovery of connection doesn't take very much. Sometimes it's a deep and complicated love affair. Other times it's a little dance with the spider. Looking at somebody in their eyes or whatever. So there's love and connectedness feeding each other. In this circle, there's also an element that's very important, very similar to love and connectedness, which is uh, compassion. Which is love and a sense of connectedness for those who are suffering, of course. Not very different. Willingness to share in the pain of others. But it's an important step, you know. Easy enough to be friends when there is no suffering, but uh, sometimes we take some distance from the people who suffer. It's hard. I understand. It's hard. And yet it's a very important ingredient. Joanna Macy, quite a significant teacher, has something to say about this. The original meaning of compassion is suffering with. It is the distress we feel on behalf of the larger whole of which we are part. It is the pain of the world itself experienced in each one of us. Those of you who were here before may remember my reading from the sutras, a passage where the Buddha reminds his listeners that the blood and the tears that have been shed by all our ancestors, or as he said in our previous lives, are much more than all the waters and the four oceans. So, that pain, cosmic pain, whatever, collective and conscious pain, whatever, needs to be experienced. Pain is the price of consciousness in a threatening and suffering world. It is not only natural, it's an absolutely necessary component of our collective healing. As in all organisms, the pain has a purpose. It is a warning signal designed to trigger remedial action. The problem, therefore, lies not with our pain for the world, but with our repression of it. And now I want to go back to our dear Etty. For those of you who weren't here before, Etty is, um, was, a a Dutch Jewish young woman who was rounded up, put in a concentration camp, and uh, in 1943 killed by the Germans. And she miraculously heard uh, diaries and her uh, diaries and, uh, and uh, some letters survived. It turns out that she had possibilities of being exempt from. Being sent to the gas chambers, at least for a while. And if she had uh, held out for a while from that fate, the the end of the war easily could have saved her. This is what she writes about that possibility. To put together two different entries in her journal, July 9, 1942. A hard day, a very hard day. We must learn to shoulder our common fate. Everyone who seeks to save himself must surely realize that if he does not go, another must take his place as if it really mattered which of us goes ours is a common destiny and that's something we must not forget now this is not somebody who's speculating You know, putting nice words together. She has the authority of the person that did what she did. She never wanted to escape as she could have. And she devoted every moment to help those around her. September 30, 1942 and now it seems that I have been exempted, quote unquote whatever that means am I expected to jump for joy? I asked the lawyer with a short leg I don't want that scrap of paper for which most Jews would give the right arm I don't want it in the least, so why should it have dropped into mine, of all, laps? I want to be sent to every one of the camps scattered all over Europe. I want to be at every front. I don't ever want to be, what they call, safe. I want to be there. I want to fraternize with all my so-called enemies. I want to understand what's happening and share my knowledge with as many as I can possibly reach. We just sit for a few moments together.